So, this show was about a lot of things. A lot of variety, a lot of topics, a lot of different people. I consider it a podcast where you can scroll through all the different topics and find something that is relevant to you. Today, we go a little bit serious, mixed in with a little bit of fun, which is kind of a lot of the podcasts, actually. But today we're talking about racial inequality with Tamata Torres. And we have a really great in-depth conversation about it, and one that I think is necessary. For me, I never shy away from difficult conversations. Nothing is off-limits to me. I want to move towards difficult things. And I find in those difficult spaces, that's where you grow quite a bit. So I'm so happy that you guys are going to get to listen to this episode with Tamata Torres. Today we welcome into the network Tamata Torres. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I was really looking forward to this conversation. You know, me too. And we we had a really awesome conversation off air that I would love to just pick up on. And I think we were discussing a lot about race relations and things going on in um, Minneapolis or Minnesota, I believe. So let's just jump into it because I'll I'll go wherever. Yeah, know? for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember when I um, reached out to you back in May, I was just, you know, looking at um, different podcasts and it seemed like you had an interesting setup and you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm generally looking to promote my business. And then we set up a pre-call and it was just a couple of days after the killing of George Floyd. And mm-hmm. you know, as you mentioned myself being in Minneapolis, um, you know, I, a part of me wanted to cancel our pre-call because I was just all over the place. Um, you know, yeah. helicopters were flying overhead. Um, I'd leave my house and I could smell like uh, buildings on fire um, um, that were maybe just a mile away from my house. Um, and, you know, since then, like, the the state of the world is has really been rocked. And it feels to me like we're we're entering like uh, almost like another civil rights era. And And I say that with hope that there will actually be change. Because we're seeing some amazing things, you know, mm-hmm. corporations recognizing Juneteenth, um, you know, and saying, take the day off. We recognize this is an important day and um, really trying to up their game when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, which we all know this is long overdue. But, you know, at least the, the sentiment is changing and people are talking about it and people understand the impact um, and that a lot of changes need to be made. Yeah, certainly. I think one of the interesting, most recent changes in the sporting world is the um, in Washington, the football team that's been there forever. One of the, I think, one of the original football teams way back in the day finally changed its name. Um, which was the Washington Redskins. To, uh-huh. I mean, it's a pretty lame interim name. They have the Washington football team. That's such garbage. Like they couldn't have, my, my daughter could have come up with a better name and she's eight, right, you know, right. but I get, but you know, what happened is all of a sudden these corporations put a lot of pressure mm-hmm. because it came down to money. They were like, Hey, we're not going to put our name on the stadium anymore. We're not going to do any of the sponsorships. 
And what generally happens, as soon as you affect somebody's wallet on a big time level, they cave in because that's a lot what people care about is the monetary aspect of it. I mean, I'm hoping that it was more than that for the owner of the team, but I'm not mm-hmm. so sure. But I'm just at least I'm glad that it happened. So things right. like that, I think, are are part of that whole narrative. Right. Like swift action is more important than no action. And sometimes that means progress over perfection. Yes. And so it's like, at least they made a change. They've acknowledged that that's super important and that's a step in the right direction. Um, and I was actually listening to some of your other podcasts and, um, and I don't remember if it was the one where you were recently interviewed. Um, but as a result, I asked you about the racial scaffolding um, yeah. or the anti-racism resources, which I thought were really cool. And that, that was a while back. And then since then, just in researching what's available online, I'm seeing a lot of the same resources coming up. Uh, but it's just, it's really neat to see them compiled in one place. And um, I, you know, I wish there was a better resource where people could just yeah. easily access and say like, okay, we know that this is a, a great organization that's doing lots of anti-racism work. And, you know, these are good go-tos. Um, as it is, I just feel like it's piecemealing and different conversations. I'm yeah. sharing different works. Um, and I, I had a conversation with some of my colleagues the other day. Um, and someone told me about uncomfortable conversations with a black man, which is with yep. Emmanuel Acho. And good. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I listened to the episode or watched the episode one and um, started the episode two, which is great because, yeah, conversations about race often are super uncomfortable, especially, you know, if it's a conversation between people of different races or a white person and a person of color. Um, and it, without these conversations, like we're really not going to move forward. Yeah, totally. It was interesting also like, uh, for the listeners. So Tamara, uh, emailed me earlier this morning and, you know, kind of put on her heart what she was hopeful we could discuss and, you know, just having a conversation. And I remember you saying on there, like, I hope you're not tired of talking about race in America. And Mm -hmm. I, I laughed when I read that because, uh, I think sometimes what people don't understand is like, I'll have friends and stuff who are white and they will bring up stuff here and there about BLM and stuff. And I was like, man, this, I'm constantly getting bombarded with this constantly. Right. Right. And I think sometimes for black folks, it's like, it's, it's good that this is going on, but it's also very exhausting because it's constantly being put, being put in your face. Like right. the conversations are so daily mm-hmm. about it that it can be exhausting. So it's good. It's definitely good. And I'm always willing to talk about it, but I, you know, and all the other black folks I've talked to throughout this time, we all have a very similar feeling like, man, we're kind of tired, just really tired. Right. Like, right. It's and, a lot and then to talk about. You know? A lot of black people are put into this role where if you're the only person of color in a <laughs> white person's circle, then you're the subject matter expert. And they're not even asking like, Darian, what's been your experience with this? It's like, they want to know, you know, what is the experience of a black man as if you can speak for all experiences, which, you know, is, is prejudicial in itself. It is. You're a unique individual. And I know in your case, um, you grew up with a military dad, you know, you, you lived Mm -hmm. in cities around the country. I think you even lived abroad, right? I did. Yes. In Germany. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, your experience is going to be really 
different. In fact, you know, some of your experiences might be more similar to other military kids than, Mm -hmm. you know, to some other people of color, just depending on, on the situation. Um, yeah. And I never had the experience of like, you know, I can't relate, you know, completely to growing up in an impoverished environment. You know, my parents were never in that situation. You know, they, we were a very middle-class black family, you know, so I can't really speak upon government housing and the plight of, you know, um, project living and stuff like that related to black people. I know about it. I have family members who have had that. And I've, I've been in those environments before, but I didn't grow up like that, you know, so I can't tell you like everything about that, you know, like. Right. And you shouldn't have to. And it's, it's not your job to, you know, educate yourself on everybody else's experience. Like we all have to do our own work. Um, and I'm, I'm learning more about the, the work that white people need to do to educate themselves, to help educate other people. Um, I think there's a lot of fatigue in the black community, you know, Mm -hmm. like they're just being tired about talking about it and feeling like they have to explain everything. Um, and it's like, you know, there's enough other things going on in everybody's lives. Like, you know, not everybody has time to just be like, all right, let me sit down and spend 30 minutes drafting an email to, for, for, to understand some of my perspective. It's like, who has time for that? People need to do their own work. Um, and you know, for myself, I feel like I'm in kind of a, a interesting situation as being a mixed race person who presents as white, which is not, you know, intentional on my part. It's not like an attempt to white pass, but you know, I just, I look white. Most people, uh, would consider me to be white. And that means that I experience a lot of white privilege, regardless mm-hmm. of how I may internally identify myself. And so I feel like that's an interesting experience as well, because I'm seeing a lot of anti-racism resources that are um, directed towards white people or people who identify as white. And I feel like I also have to look at those as well. Even if that's not my identity, that's how I'm perceived. And so I have this privilege, whether I ask for it or not. Yeah, it's interesting when you you mentioned that uh, to me. And I think that's a, I kind of look at that also in a sense on the other side of, um, in the black community, you know, there's different shades of black. Mm -hmm. And and so for me, like I am, I consider myself black and come from black parents, but they're also black parents that are more, like more light skin. Mm-hmm. And so in the black community, there's different, like there's more of like somebody that looks like me or somebody that's more a darker skin, somebody that's more brown. Mm-hmm. And we've had our own issues with that in our community with people and almost um, racism within the black community. Right. Colorism. To that. Colorism, yeah, and and looking at that, which I always hate it, man. I really always hate it. But there's always, and then you get into the whole one drop rule of like somebody who comes from, you know, a white parent and then a black parent, and then the 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 child, you know, who is biracial is then considered black. Mm-hmm. And then there's pressure from the black community, but like you must be black, you must be black. I'm like yes, but but then like sometimes they're told not to embrace their white aspect of it, like it's a bad thing. Right. And you know it's so it's it can be a very complicated thing as well when mm-hmm. things like that. 
Yeah, I'm hearing a lot from like um, transracial adoptees who are yes. black that were adopted by white families, like the um, that Amazon Prime um, documentary, Black White Us. That you so mentioned. good. Yeah, so good. really good. I thought it was so interesting. I'm like Utah of all places because I really think of Utah as a, a very predominantly white place. Um, so that's really interesting. And one of the things that they said there was that like because black children growing up in these families, they don't feel like they fit in a hundred percent that oftentimes they'll leave their family of origin to join communities of color. And I just thought, you know, that must be heartbreaking for the parents if they feel like they did what they could to raise their children. And yet they couldn't give them everything that they needed because they didn't have the experience of, you know, uh, this is what you need to know if you get pulled over by the cops or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, people are going to want to touch your hair or whatever it is because they, yeah. didn't, they didn't have that experience to pass down. And, and, you know, I think young adults often have a bit of a rebellion regardless, you know, whether it's to their their race or their family or whatever it is. Um, but it's hard to like e- equip white parents to... Uh, have all the knowledge and the resources that they need to to raise kids of color. Yeah, and it's like in that, I mean, again, that's an, I would tell anybody, please watch that. It's so incredible. And the main guy, he is so thoughtful about yeah. how he explains it. He's just like, I mean, right. this guy should be a speaker about this stuff, you know, maybe yeah. he is. But I think there's just a lot of things you don't think about, especially in transracial adoptions, or if you're white and you're and you've been, your life has been very homogenous, you know, this monoculture uh, in a sense. And I was listening to, uh, on Code Switch, a podcast I really enjoy. And uh, it was called Why Now White People? It was pretty funny, but it was also yeah. serious. And they talked about how a previous podcast they did and that, um, you know, like that a majority of white people spend time around white people. And that they may have one black friend or something like that, but that like black people generally have a much more heterogeneous um, friendship circle in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for white people, if you're living in a very homogenous environment, you know, residential living environment, work environment, you are oblivious because you're never being exposed to what other people are, how they're living and their lifestyle. Right. for that or if you have there's one black guy like you said then you go or a person you go oh that's the uh representative of all black people so right. i'm going to talk to tim over there because he's going to yeah, tell you about the black experience you know right yeah that's that's really unfortunate i mean i think that's partially like the way our societies have been created like very yes. segregationist right um yes. i i just started reading um Ibram X. Kendi's, you know, he wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, but he also mm-hmm. partnered with Jason Reynolds, who's a young adult author, to remix the writing of um, his book, Stamped. And so my mom bought it for my daughter and me to read together. Um, and like, you know, these are really heady topics. So I'm more than happy to read the young adult version, (laughs) you know, just like, let's make these concepts simple. Let's break down history together. And like the first couple chapters are looking at like, um, you know, how racism came to America, like, you know, from the very inception of, uh, you know, 
people coming here, you know, Columbus coming here and um, pilgrims and everything else is just really interesting. And Jason Reynolds as an author, he's like a Coretta Scott King book award winner. And um, his goal is just to get kids to enjoy reading and young boys in particular. Um, right. And my daughter and I are looking through the, the book. We have, it's a um, hardcover book and we're looking in the, on the back in the photos of Jason Reynolds and Imber X. Kindy. And, um, you know, Kendi looks kind of like a scholar, you know, he wears glasses Yeah. and, um, Jason Reynolds, he looks younger. He's got these long dreadlocks and Kendi does too, but they're just pulled back. They just, you know, it's just a different presentation. And, and my daughter looked at the photo of Jason Reynolds and said, he doesn't look like a writer. And I said, well, you know, like, what does a writer, look what does that like? mean? Yeah. yeah. Like anybody could be a writer. And that's just like a, it's like a perfect uh, example of the old, like the biases that we hold, you know, like I, if I see someone with glasses and someone who doesn't have glasses, I'll probably say the one with glasses more, is more likely to be the bookworm. And then later on the writer, yeah. you know, and it's like, where did we get that from? Some people hate to read and they wear glasses, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and then also probably, you know, looking at hair and like, um, you know, where do we see dreadlocks in, in popular culture or day-to-day culture? And, you know, what is our association with that? And it's just really interesting, like as much as, um, you know, my daughter comes from, she's in a school that's very social justice oriented. They actually, um, in middle school, they do a civil rights trip um, down to Birmingham, Alabama, and they meet oh, with freedom wow. fighters and, it's like the culmination of their studies. Um, but throughout it's all, it's very much about um, the empowerment of kids and people of color and how kids have really impacted the world, you know, looking at role models like Malala and, you know, learning that kids have a voice and kids can make a difference and, you know, having conversations about race and social justice from kindergarten through eighth grade, through their entire curriculum, and then being able to to meet with people that were involved with SNCC and the civil rights movement. Yeah, and, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really an amazing experience. Um, and so I would think that she would be like just more knowledgeable than maybe the average kid. And yet like these associations still pop into our heads. And, you know, that was the first thing that she said is that he didn't look, you know, it wasn't what she had in mind of, of what uh, an author would look like. So it's really interesting. There's so much of this like implicit bias that we have. Um, have you ever seen those tests that they have? Um, there's a project that Harvard does on implicit bias, and you can take a bunch of different tests on different types of biases to learn no, like where you stand it. on the scale. Um, so I heard about these tests years ago. And, um, you know, it came back into my mind in the last couple of weeks and, um, my daughter and I were, were visiting with my mom and my mom's like a spiritual elder in the community. And I think of her as like very, um, like woke slash present slash mindful. And, um, and she's, she's Japanese from Japan. And so that's very much a part of her cultural identity 
And I said, you know, I, I want to take one of these implicit bias tests, but I'm like worried to see what the results are because I like to think of myself as very open-minded and that I don't have these biases. Um, and so I don't want to take it. And she said, oh, I took the test. I scored horribly. We all have these biases. And I was just like, oh, right. Okay. And it's it's not, I mean, we should be aware of, of these biases, but um, it's it's part of our society and it's part of our culture like it permeates our culture and so you know it's good to be aware of them you don't necessarily have to feel guilty about them you should learn to address them but know that this is normal because our society has been created kind of with the idea of white supremacy not just like these the skinhead type of you know movement but just that whites are fundamentally better for so many reasons. And as a corollary, it's okay to enslave black people or, you know, make, um, bring Chinese immigrants to build a, a railroad and, you know, to use people of color for labor and commoditize them um, without giving them the rights and the privileges of uh, a full human. Well, it's a lot like, I mean, you've been listening to some of the podcasts, and I've said this in other things um, in those podcasts. I think history is many times written by the victor mm-hmm. or the majority. And for a lot of people, they're just realizing that the history that they've learned has been extremely incorrect or very persuasive towards the victorious and that yeah. the majority. And that's why that anti-scaffolding list is very important and different things is like, hey, you need to look backward, backwards first and learn the real history of our country and enslavement of black people or enslavement or internment of people of color or that, like learn it, you know, and the, the so baffling when people think of the Civil War as this thing about states' rights. I'm like, <laughs> right. yeah, states' rights for slavery. I'm like, yeah. slavery was an economic enterprise that you take any, you take a huge amount of your workforce and, and you let them go. You're thinking, this is going to destroy my business type of thing. It's, it's just foolish how we have, pre- how it's been presented for a lot of people historically. We really need to understand what's going on here. And I think that's, that leads into the whole aspect when I hear people talking about, you know, Confederacy things mm-hmm. and statues, which, you know, is a very um, passionate argument for people on both sides for it. And I never understand this whole thing. It's like, you're erasing our history. I'm like, I don't, I wouldn't look at it that way. Look at it as a reframing of yeah. how things are. Would you want a statue up of somebody that did really terrible things and just frame it on something else in your life. Would you put up a statue of a school teacher that did, that enslaved students and did really horrible things, um, but was important in like whatever, increasing the popularity of teaching over the years? Uh, like you yeah. would never stand for that. You would never stand for that. So that's, that's all we're saying in that sense is like, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. You can't erase what happened. It happened. But a reframing of like, maybe we should relook at how these people presented themselves as human beings. And do we want to commemorate those people in this way? You know, 
Right. Having a second look. And it's, you're absolutely right that history is written by the victors. And um, I went to a women's college. And so, you know, the, the big emphasis was like, you know, not just history, but history and, you know, where were women involved and what's our story. And, um, you know, that was like a helpful reframe for me to understand how women contributed to history and literature and science and all kinds of fields. And, um, and then also just being in a classroom, that's all women without like a a male in the room to dominate the conversation. Cause some of our um, I went to Barnard, which is the women's college at Columbia University. And some mm-hmm. of our classes were open to men and women. And if there was a, a mixed gender class, or if there was even a couple, a handful of guys in a mostly woman's um, class, they dominated the conversation. And it just, I, I think there's so many parallels between um, seeing like the domination of, of men in society and the domination of whites in society um, I put an infographic on my LinkedIn a couple of days ago that someone had put together about like there's as many uh, women CEOs as there are like men named Michael. <laughs> and then there's like um, for, for all the Fortune 500 companies, maybe there's like, you know, a handful of women and even fewer women of color. Um, but I think there's definitely a lot of parallels in that domination. And so then you get the, the Venn diagram where you have men and you have uh, whites and then you have white men and they're still running a lot of things. And, you know, we're missing out on all kinds of perspectives. You know, we're learning so much about when we have different perspectives, when everybody has a seat at the table, when everybody is is not just... Um, you know, give an equal say, but also help to feel included in the conversation as a real stakeholder, there's a lot that we can all learn from each other and diverse perspectives, whether it be related to race or religion or gender identity, really help us to be stronger. These different perspectives help us to, you know, build better teams, build better products, um, you know, be better individuals and corporations. And so it's, it's super important that we get everybody to the table for these conversations. Most definitely. And I think one of the other aspects is, at least on my at side of the table, is I was talking to Robert Collier about this, who will be on my podcast, and you know, as another Black male, we were talking about kind of the pressure to do something mm-hmm. in this time. And, and we were discussing, like, what's the right thing? Because I think Sometimes there, as a black person, it's like you see all this going on. You're like, should I should I be protesting? Should I be doing all these things? And but what if that's not native for you? Right. That's not if you know. I, I know this sounds maybe kind of counter against what's going on. I'm all for it. I just that doesn't feel native for me mm-hmm. doing that. Like and it's not really was, authentic the way that you. Would. It's just not my thing. You know, I I, I believe in it, but it's just like. I'm not, it doesn't feel like I need to go and do that. You know, like for me, like I decided, like, I want to really think about what I want to do to be a part of this movement as a black person. And so for me, I felt like the best thing for me to do was work behind the scenes, um, which is generally what I like to do. So I met with the black police chief in our town and we had an awesome conversation. It was amazing. And what are some things we could do, some roundtables, community events to highlight 
um, uh, people of color? What are some things we can do to advance some things? There's no, there's no press for that. You yeah. know, there's no TV for that. It's just two people sitting outside of a coffee shop, black people, one a police chief who's on both sides of the equation, who's black, mm-hmm. and, a, a, and a role of authority as a police chief. And then uh, a citizen, you know, a, a resident of this community. And I think we had a powerful discussion. And I thought in general, it was just powerful that people could see us talking to each other and having this conversation and figuring out ways we can work with each other to create change on a local level and, and, and do it that. That felt like native to me. Yeah. You know? Right, right. You have to to work to your own strengths and and you're someone who, you know, likes to have a conversation and that's a strength of yours. So, yeah. you know, work to that. And so many changes happen one conversation at a time. Um, yeah. do, do you remember that movie that came out with um it was the conversations between a black woman and a uh, a KKK leader in the south? Um, it was a movie that came out a couple of years ago, but it was the, the two of them like consistently having conversations that allowed for a shift in the community. It's like, when would this happen? You know, a black woman, a white man, not just any white man, but a clan leader to, to get together and, and literally have a seat at the same table. And um, I think once you start to realize your commonalities, it's pretty hard to have hatred yeah. towards an entire group. Um, I thought this was, this was uh, demonstrated really well in another Netflix or it wasn't Netflix. It was uh, Amazon prime. It's a documentary, like an hour long called, are you racist? And they, they show how different tests reveal if you have subconscious racism. And they took this um, white male who was like a head of some Australian freedom party because it was done in Australia. And he was meeting with an Aboriginal woman And um, the exercise was to ask certain questions that were meant for them to see connections and feel closer. And it was just amazing. Like, oh, you know, tell me about a a recent experience that you had that made made you happy. And um, the the man was like, oh, you know, I I got to see my mother recently after a long period of time. And um, that was really moving for me. And I really appreciated having the time to connect with her. And then the woman starts to share like, oh yeah, you know, family's so important. And then they talk about their parents as role models and you know, they're, they're smiling, they're laughing, they're looking each other in the eyes, they're connecting. And this was the person, the, the white male at the beginning had pretty much identified like, I, you know, believe that we should have a certain status in society and I'm, you know, want to keep immigrants out of the country or, you know, just it was very obviously a racist attitudes that he held. And, you know, you just have to have an open mind and, um, you know, there's, there's certain people that we can help to move in, in a more open-minded direction. They have to be open to that. There's other people that they're just going to dig in their heels. You know, if you try to have a conversation, they're going to get more adamant about their own stance. And those are, you know, some, Personally, I, I just have to write those people off because I'm not necessarily interested in getting into a, a battle of the wits with someone who um, is not really open to changing 
their minds. Maybe I'm not open to changing my mind either when it comes to <laughs> I think we're all pretty set in our own ways. I just like to think that uh, the way I think is more on the side of right. But, you know, again, that's my opinion. But I do sure. want to live a, a life that's more inclusive and set that example and for my daughter. Um, and, and I notice another commonality that you and I have is that we're both raising daughters. Uh, and your daughter's eight, right? She's eight, yeah. Um, what kinds of conversations do you have with her? And, and what is it like for, for you and your family to live in a community that uh, is a, a smaller town, right? So like, yeah, like what's the climate there and what are the, some of the conversations that you've had? Or that well, you we have a unique family uh, because, um, you know, I'm black, my wife is white and my daughter is black mm-hmm. and because we adopted her when she was a month old. Mm-hmm. So um, she's um, much darker skin than I am. I'm fairly light skinned. She's more of your cocoa colored. Um, my wife is you know very white looking, <laughs> you know, so. Um, we've always, so we, we've always had to navigate the dynamic of being in, uh, interracial relate, uh, marriage. Then we adopted, uh, a fully, um, African-American child. And then the adoption aspect of it, uh, makes a very different situation. Um, so I think there's always a lot of learning that goes on in our family. And, uh, I'll share some with you, I think is, I think is an interesting point of view, interesting point of view. I don't know that a lot of people are talking about it. I'm going to wrap around to this coming up. Uh, but you know, for my daughter, we definitely sit down here in this little studio I have for my podcast and we talk about what it means to be black mm-hmm. and you know, how the world has generally viewed us. So she knows all about that. You know, and just like a child, children are beautiful and they're and how they see things. They go, why does it have to be this way? Why, why do we have to have, she goes, I just look different. That's all, <laughs> you know, like it's so sweet and so innocent, you know, right, and how they, right. and you wish like, why do we, why are we so messed up sometimes as adults and how we start doing those things? But then you start recognizing too that you know, people aren't coming out feeling these things, you know, like being so incredibly terrible to other people about things like you are, people are influencing each other. Who raised you? What environment were you in? What were these, what were you indoctrinated with? You know, Mm -hmm. these little beautiful things, they, I don't believe that they were born being terrible to other humans about different skin color and stuff. You watch a bunch of kids play, you know, they just play with each other. They don't care. They just they just want to be friends with each other. They just want to play, you know. And we're we're adults. Adults have a hard time with that. With meeting people, that's a whole other thing about <laughs> things. But you know, we um, we live in a tiny town, five thousand people. We moved here one because I like the lifestyle, living near the water. We're living right on the beach. Yeah, and sounds beautiful. It's right next to Canada. Yeah, it's awesome. And so Canada is an incredibly diverse. Um, place especially on the coast mm-hmm. where we're at in BC we're near there so you have huge immigrant communities massive communities of huge different cultures and so we often frequent that when we could when we can go over the border we can't right now but i wanted my daughter to see how different types of people live whether pakistani indian you know uh asian um just to see what that's like 
And um, so it's been very beneficial to live up here to have that. But where we're at is certainly a much more uh, more homogenous, honestly. But my wraparound point is that sometimes I think it's important for us to, Black people to, I don't want to say infiltrate, but to put ourselves in places where other people, not necessarily uncomfortable, but that they see that we're here. Mm-hmm. They They know we're, so for me, I know that when in my neighborhood, it's a beautiful neighborhood. People are very, very kind to us. But we're I'm probably the first black neighbor a lot of these people have ever been around, have had. Yeah. You know. And so I'm an anomaly when I move into a neighborhood. But it doesn't bother me because I grew up in different neighborhoods all over the world. And so it doesn't make me uncomfortable to be in places where maybe it's a little more homogenous right. for that. But I think it's important for black people to get out into places that uh, normally black people aren't seen. So I, we always take our daughter to like Montana and all these different places where the black population is very low. But you know what? They need to see us. Right. They need to see us. They need to understand that we we do like visiting these types of places. We want to see, we're not a certain way the way you think we may be mm-hmm. for that. You know, so I, I maybe I have a different perspective on stiff stuff like that, you know. That sounds like you're, like you're really intentional about it. Yes. And then also being married to a white woman, having a black daughter, like there there's more things that you have to think about in terms of all yes. of that. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's super interesting. I was thinking about, you know, the the idea where people don't have enough opportunity to interact or they don't take that opportunity to interact. And I think part of it, it's like, as we become adults, I think we become a little bit more close-minded. We feel like we kind of, we have our friendships and our relationships established as adults. I feel like it's harder to meet new people. And, um, I was looking at my, my recent messages in instant messenger. And I was like, huh, I wonder how my friend group, um, is reflective of like what's important to me and and who I associate with. So I, I was like, who are the last 10 people that I connected with? And I was like, oh, okay. So this person of color, person of color, person of color. And looking at 10 people, there were seven people of color. And then the other three were white married to a person of color. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. Yeah. And I think just people... Part of it is is the way our communities are are developed, you know, redlining and all kinds of things. Like, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of opportunity necessarily to, um, if you don't have a black neighbor and you live in a white area, mm-hmm. and a lot of the people that you work with look like you, you know, how do you meet people that have a different background than you? You know, where where are those mixers? It's like you look at, uh, you know who would you invite to your wedding or who have you seen at different weddings? And it's just, it can be pretty homogenous. And I think, I think some of those relationships start to change um, a lot with school and college. Like college is an amazing opportunity. Like you just realize all of these commonalities because it's like you're fledglings, you know, you've left home, at least in my case, because I was living on campus. Um, And it's like, we're all in the same spot. Like, you know, moving to New York city, um, meeting with other people that had just moved there, or maybe they lived there for a long time, but now they're on campus 
And it's just all about seeing those commonalities and creating those connections and realizing we are more similar than we are different. And, and a lot of the differences that we may have are not so much related to race as they are related to class and education, um, which is a whole nother thing. But, you know, then we see like, oh, well, how come some groups have more education or are more educated or have better jobs? And it's because like, well, this is the way the system has been developed. And, And unless we do something to change it, this is the way it will continue to be. Oh, most definitely. It's, it's all an, it's an interesting conversation. You made me think about like my experience kind of always going into new places and essentially being the only one. I never forget the first time my wife and I went to Iceland uh-huh. and I wanted to visit it. And I was yeah. like, I don't know, I, it didn't matter to me because I had grown up living around the world and I just, whatever, you know, I went there. I never forget we got, we rode the bus system there, which is amazing actually. And this, this young Icelandic uh, male got on the bus and I think he saw me. I think I must have exploded his whole existence <laughs> because he literally got on the bus. He sat down. He turned around and he stared at me the entire ride. I'm talking eye to eye, dead in the face. Wow. Looking at me. He didn't say a word. It wasn't like he was like, you know, it was weird. Like he was, it was like, like a dog turning its head to the side. That curious look a dog mm-hmm. does when it looks. And he was doing that. And I think he had never seen any b- person that looked like me. Because Iceland's a very homogenous country. I mean, yeah. extremely homogenous. And I must have like, it must have felt like to him that I came from another planet. Yeah. And landed my spaceship in Iceland and was riding. <laughs> there. And my wife was like, oh my God, he's staring right at you. I'm like, you have to understand, he has probably never seen anything like me before. He saw it maybe on TV that was his closest experience to seeing somebody that looked like this, you know, right. and I'm very sensitive to that with me. I understand that, you know, when I go mountain biking in Canada and Whistler, I'm always the only black person there. Mm-hmm. Always. I get stared at in the lines. This is, this is now times. Like I get stared at in the in the lines, people look at me and, and in many ways I'm like, I tell people I'm with, I'm like, this is important. Mm-hmm. See, I need to be here. We need to be here to break these molds of that. We don't do these type of activities. We don't visit these parts of the country. We don't travel to these areas. Right. We exist. Acknowledge me. I'm just like you. I like to do this stuff too. And, <laughs> you know? and, and just by being who you are, you're breaking stereotypes. Yeah. You know, it's not like you're saying, I'm going to take up mountain biking because I don't know. No, I just like to do it. it. You know, yeah. <laughs> but, but you're also not shying away from it. Been saying, no. well, I don't know anybody else that's doing it, but I think it's really interesting your perspective um, because I think a lot of people, you know, if, if someone stares at them like that, they see it as disrespectful or threatening yeah. or whatever, and that you can just recognize it as like this is a, a you know case of curiosity. Like, this, this is a moment, like, you know, yeah, like it's yeah. really pivotal for this person, and they've never seen somebody that looks like me, you know. And I think. I think it's really powerful when we don't make it so much about ourselves. When we could, you know, it sounds like you are an empathetic person. You could put yourself in their shoes and say, wow, this was a really interesting experience for this person, you know? Right? Yeah, well, to me, the, you know, the best way. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the best way to get people on defense is if you start going on offense with them, you know? And if I could have been like, stop staring at me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it could have created tension. I just look straight at him and I let him, t- I let him soak it all in, man. I was like, I wanted to think about it. Like, yeah, it's right. You're looking at me. I'm here. Right. I am in Iceland. I don't care. I want to enjoy your country. And you know what? I'm going to, and I, I've, we've been back four times. And you know what was amazing? The last time we went was actually December. And I saw several black families in Iceland and it made me so, I was so pumped up. I told my wife, I said, Michelle, look at that. Look at these black families in Iceland. This is awesome. You know, that, that is really cool. Um, I ended up visiting Reykjavik for a 24 hour stay over. Nice. It was going to be like a two hour thing, but it was during the, the Paris attacks. And I was in Paris in uh, what, 2015. And I called Iceland air and I was supposed to have a two hour stopover. I said, can I just make it a you know twenty six hour stopover? Can I get an earlier flight? And they're like, yeah, of course. And um, and it was a great experience. It's like a beautiful country and mm-hmm. um, surprisingly warm, like the same temperature as New York, like very temperate <laughs> environment in November. Yep. I was like, this is this is beautiful. I definitely would love to go back there and take my family there again. But um, yeah, I do remember it being pretty homogenous homogenous uh, yeah <laughs> interesting environment for sure um but thinking about empathy some other things that i was curious about in terms of your perspective um i've heard you talking in other podcasts about like your focus on developing the people that you work with like just the the authentic care that you have for for your mm-hmm. teams for your clients um I'm curious to know like how that how that's still a part of your life probably like you know relationship management with the the people that you train but um where do you think that comes from in you how do you think that developed and and like how did you realize the importance so that you could continue to make it like a priority in your interpersonal relationships That's a good question. Um I think it's something that became really important to me um, in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. And as I just, I think I just had this moment, you know, in, in my early twenties where I was just starting to really think about the type of person I wanted to become. Mm. And I got, I got very hip to the game very quickly that people prioritize money over people all the time. Yeah, And I didn't like that. I really didn't like that. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to create my own path in life, I want to have dignity when I do that. And I want to feel no regret about how I live my existence and that I spent my existence focusing on human beings and caring about them. And I think my educational background too, as I had more and more education, as I got my doctorate, I started to learn about what makes people tick. I understand the, the psychosocial dynamics, dynamics of, of being a human being. And I said, oh, okay, you know what? You know what's most important in life is meeting people's basic needs, the uh-huh. sense of safety and love and compassion and caring, and that people will be willing to listen to you, be open-minded with what you're talking about if you meet their basic needs in life. It's very difficult to have a conversation about climate change to somebody who's struggling to figure out what they're going to eat the next day. That makes sense, yeah. They don't care about that. How can you care about something that large 
And you go, this is so important, the earth and the planet. But meanwhile, they literally don't know if they're going to make it from day to day. You can't have a theoretical conversation, hypothetical, realistic conversation about larger, complex topics if you haven't met the person's basic needs for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think for myself, there's always this like uh, this want, this need to be respected and seen as an expert in my field. And then balancing that out with the understanding that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I naturally look much younger than I am. I'm in my 40s. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've always felt like I need to kind of like establish myself uh, in a way that people respect me, otherwise they won't listen to me. And so I, I feel like there's always that balancing at like, yes, but you can be respected or knowledgeable or competent, but that doesn't mean people want to listen to you or enjoy listening to you. And it's always about finding that, like, you know, um, for myself, how do I be more vulnerable? How do I be more open? How can I um, make sure that there's ways that we can connect authentically. And, you know, I'm an extrovert, so I definitely enjoy connecting with people, but, um, but I'm also not a fan of, um, you know, maybe putting out my flaws or, um, you know, letting people know even like when my days are difficult because I, I want to project myself in a certain way. And, um, you know, I think we're all human, right? So we're all going to have our days. It's just a matter of, you know, how we get through them. I remember sharing something on um, a short video on Instagram that I put out months ago. And, and my video was like, today I had a really bad day. And, you know, bad days suck. And just talking about that. And I think like that got so much better feedback and engagement because I think people are tired of seeing everybody's highlighted good days. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. It, it gets to the point where it's like, Oh, that's right. Look at, look at her. She's living her best life, you know, and it's like, <laughs> we're, we're living in a pandemic. Like I don't think anybody's really living their best life. Like you can't have a, a, a kind of day that maybe you enjoyed months ago when you could, uh, eat in a restaurant and not worry about your personal health and safety and, or, you know, yeah. keeping your job or, or those kinds of things. Um, but just from what I'm hearing from you and what I know about you, it, it seems like it's your, your desire to be open. And I think probably also you have a, a lot of genuine curiosity for others and, and people, yeah people find you interesting when they see how curious you are about them. Yeah. And you know, for me is I'm just grateful that I have another day each day. I literally wake up and I go, man, I got another one. That's really awesome. And for me, I don't, I don't desire to be um, the smartest fitness professional or the most well-known. I, I don't care about that. I desire to be the best version of a human in that business and that people feel that I'm the best companion of another person. Mm. That's what I want to be. Companionship is probably the crux of my business and my personal life. Do people think that Darian is a good companion and a kind and caring person with other human beings? If 
if I can achieve that on a regular basis, then that's what means the most to me versus if I have the most knowledge. Yes, I have a lot of knowledge. I have my doctorate and all these things. I've done a lot of work, but it really doesn't mean anything if, uh, if I'm an asshole, you know, I mean, just really who cares about what I know? So if I can be a good companion to other people and they feel comfortable and they feel that I love them mm-hmm. and I'm genuine with them, that's the peak of human existence. That's self, that's the closest you can attain to self actualization with other people. Um, but and same, I aspire to that. You're meeting those basic needs that you talk yeah. about. Like people want to be loved. They want to be accepted. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's a super interesting perspective because I think a lot about when when people do personal training, um, you know, myself as a coach, I think about accountability. And so in my mind, I felt like a, a big piece of what personal training provides is really consistent accountability. People are they're going to meet with you because they're scheduled to meet with you and they need to have that outer accountability. Um but aside from that accountability, it sounds like the way you develop relationships and rapport, it's not just that people have to meet with you. They want to meet with you. Like they are, they're driven to spend time with you. They enjoy spending time with you. Um, and I think when it comes to exercise or anything else that we want to be doing consistently in our lives, how, whatever we can do to make it more enjoyable, it's going to help us to be more successful. So it's interesting to hear hear that the companionship over the accountability has been really huge for your relationship. Oh my gosh! For your business, I take it to every aspect of my life. Am I a good companion? Uh huh. Do people feel comfortable around me? Like in my friendships with people, I want to be the friend that people get excited to spend time with, because I won't judge them. I'll listen to them. We'll be we'll have fun together. I could let loose. I could be conservative. I could be all these different things, but you know, the thing that will never change is I'm always going to love you. I'm always going to care about you. And I'm and not just going to like have that feeling. I'm going to tell you to your face that I love you, that I care about you. You're important to me. I'm going to feed and build up your basic needs. I'm going to give that to you on a regular basis so you feel good. There's too many people making people feel bad. Yeah. I want to make you feel good on a regular basis in the things that you need to feel the basic level of being a human. Then we could start having more complex conversations about yeah. other things. That's amazing. And and I knew that you had a high level of compassion and caring from the very first conversation that we had when we when we Thank spoke you. just after George Floyd. Um, we were wrapping up the phone call and you said you know, if you ever need anything, just, just call me, just let me know. Like I, I care about you. I'm, I'm here for you. And that was yep. huge. And I knew that you weren't just saying that you had no, reason. no lip service here. <laughs> no, no, there's no reason for you to just say that. Like we, we barely knew each other. Um, but it, it means a lot when we speak from the heart, people see that that's authentic and it really shows through what's important to you. That's one of the things I like about your podcast too, is just that, you know, it is a conversation. Um, and at, and at the same time, I'm like, well, but I, but I am running a business. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about some stuff that's going on in my business. Uh, I said that the business talk wouldn't be off the, the table, but I thought it would be an interesting segue to see like some of the ways that you, um, 
effectively run your business with those relationships. Um, and what I'm finding in coaching is not just the importance of um, relationships with my clients, but just the importance for each of us to build relationships with others, as well as making sure that we have the time that we need for self-care. And these seem to be like real you know, foundational things, whether it be exercise or eating right or getting the sleep that we need. Um, and so while my focus is productivity and helping people to be more productive and improve their habits, manage their time so that they have the time and energy for, for everything that matters most to them, um, more and more in the last couple of years, I'm realizing that like my own intention every day is to connect with people, connect with myself, be present, present for relationships, present for the ta task at hand, you know, maintain focus for productivity, but also maintain focus just for presence in every situation. Um, so I'm now I'm trying to build that more into the work that I do. So like, um, I do this workshop called productivity with heart, aligning your values with your schedule, where I I help people to clarify their values and say, well, if this is really important to you, it needs to be on your calendar every day or every week, because the way we spend our days is the way we spend our lives. And if you say, you know, relationships are important, but you're not making it a priority, then either it's not that important to you or you're really missing out on greater life satisfaction. Most definitely. You know, I think it's a good part two to this, actually. Uh, think about it. Um, you know, our time's about up here, but I would love to make this a part two conversation and just a natural segue from what we were talking about to what you're talking about right yeah. now. Yeah. It just makes more sense to me, you know, so, okay, <laughs> let's just continue it because we could talk for a long time, but as in anything, there's lots of things going on in schedules and stuff. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so thank you for being on Tamada and uh, let's definitely have a conversation off air about the next one for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Sounds good. And if people want to connect with me, hopefully there'll be information like in the show notes. And um, I have an event on Monday, but I'm sure our episode will come out after that. So my next big thing is a 2020 Reset Virtual Summit, September 15th with four other coaches. So hopefully people will awesome. be able to check that out online. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you. As I said before, call me anytime, anything. I'm happy to help. Yeah. I appreciate you as well. I appreciate you taking the time to connect with me and have me on your program. And I'm looking forward to connecting again soon. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching, and finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences. And it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed, 
It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text DONUT to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.